morning, students. It's good to be with you again. Uh, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and find Exodus chapter 33. We're going to be in Exodus 33 and 34 today. And this is the penultimate lesson in the book of Exodus. Next week, we're going to finish up the book over the last five or six chapters. Uh, It's a lot of rehashing of things we learned in the previous chapters on the instructions of how to build the tabernacle and the uh, garments of the priests and the dedication of the tabernacle. Uh, But today, we are kind of in this uh, in this junction point between the idolatry of Israel with the golden calf and continuing the covenant through the building of the tabernacle. So um, Israel was about to receive the stipulations of how to live in this covenant from Moses. Remember, he was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and they got impatient, and they took matters into their own hands and committed idolatry. They set up a golden calf and worshipped it. They committed uh, great heinous sin in, in front of it, and, and Moses responded with judgment. Uh, but he also interceded on behalf of Israel to, to God. So they were saved from God's righteous wrath, right? They deserved to be destroyed. They deserved to be punished because they broke the covenant. Uh, and so Moses actually broke the stones. Remember, he broke the tablets in front of Israel, signifying that the covenant had been broken. So now, as we pick up in Exodus chapter 33, Moses is going to go back to God, and, and we're kind of left wondering, what happens next? I mean, if you're reading this story for the first time, you have to wonder, is God going to continue the covenant or not? I mean, the covenant's been broken by Israel. Uh, will he give Israel another chance? Um, will the covenant even continue? Will, will Israel still be God's people? And today, we'll see from Exodus 33 and 34 whether or not that's the case. So first, we're going to find in, Israel, in uh, Exodus 33, uh, the whole chapter, that Israel will be spared by the mercy of God. Israel's going to be spared by the mercy of God. Remember, Israel tried to bring God to them for their own purposes with the creation of the golden calf. Remember, they weren't wanting to worship God for who He is. They were wanting to set up this golden calf so that someone with power could lead them into this promised land. Remember, they were wanting to use God as a tool, not as someone to submit their lives to and to worship. And so it caused God to not draw near, but instead to stay away because of their sin. So when the people of Israel took matters into their own hands, it had the opposite effect of what they wanted. They wanted a God who would be near, but their sin caused God to stay away. But God still had a promise to keep. Israel was going to inherit this land that God swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it may look different than originally intended. So let's look in chapter 33, starting in verse 1. It says, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. It is for a single, if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Let's pray before we go any further. Well, God in heaven, we pray that as we 
dive into your word this morning, we would see with, with more and with greater clarity who you are. That you are a God who is infinitely kind and merciful. You are compassionate. You're slow to anger and quick to forgive. But you are also just and righteous. And you will rule on your terms over all things, especially your chosen people. So God, we pray as we make sense of what happens here in the book of Exodus, you would give us greater insight into our own hearts and our own lives, and you would allow us to rejoice and to worship knowing that we are now uh, beneficiaries of a better covenant, better than the law of Moses, better than the, the commands that we see here. We have Christ and a new covenant that we get to enjoy for eternity with you. Help us to see these things for what they are and to respond rightly with worship and obedience. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so God had just told Moses and then Israel that they're going to go to the land, they're going to inherit this land, but he's not going to be with them. That God will remove his presence from among them because they wanted to run ahead on their own terms and do their own thing and then bring God into it on their terms. But that's not how God operates. And we can be guilty of doing the same, can't we? There's a, uh, an author named John Oswald, and he writes this on this text. He says, Whenever we suggest by our actions that the presence and power of God can be pressed into our service for the fulfillment of what we determine to be our needs and for the accomplishment of our goals, we drive a wedge of major proportions between ourselves and God. Here's, here's his point. God does not exist for us to fulfill our needs and accomplish our goals. That is not the way the universe functions. And to attempt to use it in that way is spiritually deadly. Just as for a human to attempt to breathe water would be physically deadly. You see, God knows that if he was going to dwell with this people, they were going to use him for their own purposes and he would consume them. So it's not this kind of angry, capricious, bitter God it's, it's a God of love who loves this people and knows that if he's going to be with them, he will destroy them because of their sin. But here's the question. Would Israel entering into the promised land even be worth it if God wasn't with them? And I wonder how you might answer that question. If, if you were offered the promises that you've been dreaming of for uh, generations in your family or your whole life, if you, if you were offered everything that you wanted, uh, but God wasn't in it, God wasn't there, would you, still, would you still take it? John Piper has a famous quote in one of his books called God is the Gospel. He says this, he says, If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there, could you be satisfied? Could you go to this place called heaven and have all of these treasures, all of these prizes, all of these enjoyments, but no Christ? But for Israel, in this chapter, the answer was no. They were not willing to move forward without Him. More than land and homes and prosperity, they wanted God. So the people begin to mourn. They mourn that God is removing His presence from among them because God has called to them and said, I will not go with you. So God tells them again to take off their ornaments that they received from Egypt and they strip themselves of these ornaments. Perhaps it's because they reminded them of the golden calf. 
Because it's from these trinkets, from these treasures, that that idol was created. Perhaps it was another judgment from God that he's actually removing these blessings that he's given them in removing the ornaments. In either case, in verses 7-12, through 12, we learn that Moses just habitually would go to a tent outside the camp and speak to God. He would communicate with God, it says, as a man speaks to his friend. And this would invite awe and worship from the people of Israel. They would notice when Moses would walk to the outside of the camp, they would all stand at the ends of their tents, and when the cloud and the pillar of fire descended, they would begin to worship because they knew that God was here. So Moses will meet once again with God and intercede on Israel's behalf. Let's pick it up in verse 12. It says, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses goes to God and says, Look, we can't do this without you. And we don't want to do this without you. More than the land, more than the inheritance that we've been promised by you from our fathers, we want you. We want your presence among us. We want you to be with us. And so, Will you go with us? And, and it seems as though God is saying, well, Moses, I'll go with you. I'll go with you because you haven't committed this idolatry. You haven't committed this sin. But Moses reminds God yet again, he says, no, Israel is your people. We, we are all your people. And so we need you. We need you to be with us. And because God is merciful and gracious, he agrees. I read again verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. God knows Moses by name. He has this relationship with him, this, this presence that he enjoys that no one else gets to enjoy, right? Moses is the only one that gets to go to that tent and experience this, this manifestation of God's presence. And Moses just can't get enough. Now that God has agreed, now that God has said, I have found favor in you have found favor in my sight. I know you by name. Moses keeps on asking. He continues in verse 18 and asks God to show him his glory. He says, show me your glory. He can't get enough of God. He's, he's tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And so he keeps going for more. We know that God is infinite. He's a well that never runs dry. And so the good news of a relationship that you and I can have with God is that just like how our desires are unending and never satisfied in and of themselves when we go after sin and temptations and the pleasures of this world, they will never be satisfied even though those things will dry up and wither away. 
when our desires are focused on God, when our desires are pointed toward Him, when they're oriented in the right direction, these infinite desires will find an infinite object and they will always ever be satisfied and increasing in their joy and satisfaction. That's exactly what's happening with Moses here. He has seen God. He has entered into God's presence and he can't get enough of him. So God tells Moses that he will reveal his goodness to him, but he cannot show him his face. Sinful humans cannot look upon the glory of God in and of themselves and live. And Moses was still a sinner. He may not have committed the sin of Israel, but he was still a sinner. So God tells Moses that he will situate him in a, in a cleft, in a break in the rock, and he'll pass by proclaiming his own name. So, so think about this. At the beginning of this conversation, God tells Moses that he knows him by name. And now, in a sense, God is saying, Moses, you will know me by my name. I will tell you my name. I will call my own name out. So God saves Israel. Israel is spared by the mercy of God, and he will again draw near to them with his presence. So next in chapter 34, as we continue this story in the book of Exodus, we see that the covenant is going to be renewed for the glory of God. Israel has been spared by his mercy, but now the covenant will be renewed for his glory. So in all of this, God calls for Moses to bring up to the mountain two more tablets of stone. He says to carve out two more tablets of stone and I will write the law once again on those tablets. So let's pick up in verse 5 of Exodus 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance." Verse 10, and he said, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So God reveals his glory to Moses. He proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving sins. This, this is who God is. He's revealing himself to Moses through his word. This is vitally important. right? God is revealing to Moses his nature and his character, his attributes, his actions through his word. And students, the same is true for us. God has given us his word. So when we want to know who God is, when we want to know what he's like, when we want to know his, what his nature is like, what his character is like, what he desires, what he loves and hates, we go to his word. He's revealed himself to us in the way that he has always revealed himself. And that's through his word. He's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. His love goes on for 
thousands, and maybe your translation even says to thousands of generations. It's eternal love. He's also forgiving. He forgives iniquity, forgives sins, but, but he is just. He will by no means clear the guilty, God says. God's justice and righteousness are right up there with his mercy and his grace. Now, these are not enemies that we have to try to fit together. No, these are all the attributes of who God is in himself. These are not tarnished by the other. God is righteous and just, and he is also merciful and gracious. These things go together in God. The guilty will be punished, God says, and their sin will affect the generations that precede them. So now we think about God is compassionate and forgiving, and his blessing goes to thousands of generations. But his justice and his righteousness, his wrath will be poured out on the third and the fourth generation. So hopefully we see that God's bent is towards love. It's towards uh, blessing. It's towards compassion and mercy. He is still just, but he does not allow that wrath to continue forever in this life. So we know this trend in our own lives, right? Like maybe we've seen it before, maybe in your own family or in the family of a close friend. So maybe, for example, someone is an alcoholic. Well, there's probably a good chance statistically that a parent or an uncle or an aunt, someone in the generation preceding them in that family was also an alcoholic. This is a trait that continues through this kind of, uh, a kind of addiction. Or, or maybe uh, there's violence and abuse in a family. Oftentimes, people who are abused become abusers themselves later on in life. That iniquity, that sin of the father continues to the son or from the generation previous to the next generation. But oftentimes, those those sin patterns break. They don't last forever. They break. And from this, we learn two big truths for us to remember daily, for you and me to remember daily as we walk with Jesus, right? So first... We remember that God has a gracious and compassionate and forgiving heart. He is ready to show grace to those in need. Hebrews even calls the throne of God the throne of grace. That's that's what his throne is called. It's the throne of grace. Not the throne of judgment. Not the throne of righteousness. Not the throne of wrath. The throne of grace. And when we sin, we can run to Yahweh, not from Him. We run to Him. So we go to the one who wants to clean us up, that wants to forgive us. He wants to continue the covenant relationship we have entered into through Jesus. Think about it like this. If you're a Christian, if you follow Christ, if you have the Spirit of God within you, if you've been, uh, if you've been grafted into union with Christ, so now Christ is in you and you are in Christ, one of the ways that we understand that in the New Testament is the idea that we are members of the body of Christ. Now, we're talking about the church there, but we're also talking about the fact that we are in Christ, that we are now a member of His body, right? So if you are in sin, if you have fallen short, if you have committed that sin, if you've fallen into temptation, if you uh, lashed out at your sibling or your loved one or your parent, if you didn't do what you were supposed to do and you find yourself caught in sin, you are wounded by that sin. You are tarnished by that sin. There's, There's something on you that you need to be rid of. That's why John tells us in 1 John, if we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it gets better because sometimes we think when we sin, we have to like 
clean ourselves up, right, before we can go to God. We, we want to uh, say we fall into sin and we, we don't read our Bible all week long, or we don't pray all week long. We realize that we've fallen into this, this lack of relationship with God. So we say, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read my Bible every day, three times a day for the next three weeks, right? We, we want to try to uh, change our behavior. We want to try to clean ourselves up to be seen as better than we are. But we're wounded. We're hurt. We've committed sin. Something in us is broken. So Jesus, who is the head of the body, wants to heal his body, right? Say you stub your toe, right? You're walking in the middle of the night. Maybe you need a drink of water and you stub your toe. In that moment, you're not so much concerned about anything else, right? You want to bring healing to your toe. And when your toe is healed, the whole body feels better, right? So if you are a member of the body of Christ, here's the good news. Jesus wants to heal you. He wants to comfort you in your sin. And by comforting you in your sin as a member of the body, Jesus himself is comforted. You bring comfort to Christ. You bring a blessing to Christ when you run to him with your sin. You bring uh, comfort to Christ when you go to him in repentance, not waiting and saying, well, I can just do things on my own or I can, I can do better by myself. No, run to Jesus. He wants to bring you healing. He wants to forgive. He's ready to forgive. We go to him. That's the first thing we remember. That's his heart. But the second truth that we see here in Exodus 34 is that sin has consequences. The people of God are not immune to paying for sin in this life. Right? Jesus has taken away the wrath of God's judgment. Praise God. You and I have no fear of death. We don't have to have any fear of our eternity because we are secured in Christ. <coughs> but discipline from God and suffering in the midst of a broken world still remains. So Israel, who is entering back into their covenant, needs to remember this as they begin to walk with God again. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card every time they sin. right? Punishment will happen because they're falling short in this pagan land. They will be punished. They will be disciplined. They need to remember to walk in holiness. So God then promises the people of Israel that He will be with them and work among them in ways the world has never seen. That's what verse 10 says in Exodus 34. God promises that He will use them, that the nations will see the work of the Lord through them. So the, the world, the pagan world in the ancient Near East will look at Israel and they will see the work of God in their midst. And so God will get glory by taking this nation of small and weak, sinful and undeserving people and through them doing something unbelievable, right? Creating this kingdom. He is always for his glory. And in so doing, he is always for the good of his people. These two things go hand in hand. When we are following after God, when we are devoting our lives to his glory, it will always be eternally for our good. So God gives stipulations for this covenant. So first, we won't read, but in verses 11 through 17, he says that, that Israel must not enter into relationships with the pagan nations in the promised land. He says, look, you're going to enter into this promised land. You can't enter into any covenants with these other nations. You have a covenant with me. So, I mean, just think about it. If idolatry 
and false worship was a problem for Israel all by themselves on the foot of the mountain of God at Mount Sinai, how much more of a problem do you think it will be when they enter into a land full of pagan nations, false gods, and idol worship? The desire and the temptation is going to be greater in that land than, the, than it was here. And so God is saying, look, you can't dabble in sin. You can't uh, dance around and tiptoe around these temptations. You have to put them to death. You cannot give them a foothold because they will lead you into greater sin. Students, this is where we are too. As Christians, we are called to be in the world, but not of it. So we don't run after the desires of this world the way that others do. We recognize the gifts of common grace. God has blessed us immensely. Even in the season we're in, we are incredibly blessed. But we use these grace gifts to glorify God, not someone or something else. To do so, God will say here in this, in this text, to do so would literally be to prostitute ourselves to the false gods. Now remember, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how adultery and idolatry go hand in hand in the Old Testament because both promise pleasure and satisfaction by running from a covenant commitment and falling into sin. But in the end, they both end up being poisonous and deadly. So that's the first stipulation. No relationships, no covenants with these pagan nations. Second, God gives the stipulations that they will not make gods of cast metal and they will observe the feasts that God has instructed them to observe. And this is a reminder to Israel that the way they will worship God will be how God tells them to worship. They don't get to decide how they want to worship God. It, it's worship on God's terms, not theirs. Third, God commands Israel not to sacrifice their firstborn children, but instead to redeem them and to observe the Sabbath, a reminder to observe the Sabbath. Now, you may not think that this is a big deal. You may think, why do they need this? Why do they need this stipulation? It's because they're going into a land of false religions and pagan worship that regularly included child sacrifice as a form of worship. We read about this in First and Second Kings. They would sacrifice children to false gods. And these nations also never rested. They never took a break from their toil because they had to earn the favor of their gods. They, they, they couldn't rest. They, all, they always had to work in order to court favor with these false gods, whether it's through the sacrifice of their children or other kinds of sacrifices or other kinds of work. It would never end. And so the people of Israel would be different. You're not going to sacrifice your children and you're going to rest. You're going to show the world that my favor towards you is not based on what you can give me. It's based on my love and my, my passion for you. In one sense, already, Israel would serve as a, a kind of lighthouse to the nations that all of the world would, would look at Israel and see something like light in the darkness. Isaiah describes it that way in his book, that Israel would be a lighthouse to the nations. They were to be a place of rest and a place of refuge, a place of life in the midst of a stormy and chaotic land. And students, we get to carry the same kind of call today as Christians. As the church, we shine as light in the world. We offer hope for the broken, life for the dying, and rest for weary souls. And we do this in part 
by not looking like the world. We do this in a way by being distinct from the world. So is our holy distinction that sets us apart, does it cause the world to look and see the work of God? I mean, when the world looks at you, when those who are not a part of the body of Christ, the family of God, when they look at you, do they see something distinct? Do they notice that something is different? And we're going to get a really good example of that here at the end of this chapter because Israel will definitely notice something different about Moses. So Moses is going to be changed by the presence of God. He's going to be changed. So Moses hears this word from the Lord, and then he goes down to tell Israel what's next, and they're stunned. They're stunned. Look at Exodus 34, starting in verse 29. It says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he, what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So Moses would enter into the presence of God, and when he returned, everybody knew it. Right? There, there wasn't a way for Moses to hide that he was in the presence of God. He had to assure Aaron and then the elders and then the rest of the people that he was okay that he could actually be approached. <clears throat> he would wear a, a veil to cover the glory that was shining off of his face. And so this was the routine. Moses would spend time in God's presence, and then he would be visibly affected. And that's what this covenant relationship was able to do. Right? The relationship that Moses had with God was able to physically transform Moses so that all the nation of Israel would see that he had been in God's presence. But Moses didn't even know it. Right? It's, it's interesting that Moses is coming down off the mountain and doesn't even know that his face is shining. And here's the point that I think the book of Exodus is trying to show us. Moses didn't spend time with God so that people would notice that he spent time with God. You see what I'm saying? M Moses isn't spending time with God so that later on when he sees other people, he can say, hey, I, I spent time with God today. He, he's not spending time with God in order to get something for himself that he might show himself to be greater in the midst of other people. No, Moses spent time with God because he loved God. Moses spent time with God because he wanted more of his presence, because that's who he needed more than anyone else. And this covenant allowed Moses that kind of access. But remember, the people of Israel, they remained prohibited from entering that tent. They didn't have the kind of access that Moses had. So how wonderful is it when you think about our relationship with Jesus that we have a better covenant, a new covenant. Flip over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Moses, or Paul picks up on the story of Moses. He, he's trying to tell the, the church in Corinth something wonderful about their salvation, something wonderful about the new covenant that they now have in Christ. 
So I'm going to read a, a good chunk. I'm going to start in verse 7 of chapter 3. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. It says, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Let's just pause real quick. So uh, Paul calls the Old Covenant the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone. He's not saying that the, the, the covenant with Moses is a, a covenant that leads to death, like that's why it was set up. But he's saying that the only thing the covenant could produce in the life of an Israelite was death. Why? Because they can't keep the covenant. That's the whole point. Paul is telling the, the, the church in Corinth, this old covenant only could produce death in sinners because the sinners cannot obey the covenant. They can't keep it. And the, the stipulation for breaking that covenant is death. So he calls the old covenant the ministry of death. But the new covenant is the ministry of the Spirit. It's a, it's a covenant that we enter into by the Spirit of God applying the work of Christ to us. So let's keep going. Verse 9. For if, the, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's the old covenant, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has now come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For what was being brought to an end came with glory, or for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they, that is the people of Israel, the Jews, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Students, this is us. We now have unveiled faces, direct access to God by His Spirit in a way that Moses couldn't even have dreamed of. Now the, the access that was only afforded to one person in the Old Covenant, that type, that shadow, that picture is pointing to something so much greater to what we have in the New Covenant. Now all of us have that direct access to God's presence through Christ and through His Spirit. The Old Covenant could only bring death but now in the new covenant, we have life in Christ. In the old covenant, there was only condemnation. But now, because of the work of Christ in the new covenant, we have righteousness. And now, we are being transformed and we are uh, to doing so together from one degree of glory to the next. So, so think about it. Paul is saying, we, with unveiled face, are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. This is not primarily something you do on your own. This is not something you do by yourself. 
Paul is saying, no, this is something that happens in the church. This is something that happens with the body of Christ. This is something that happens in the family of God that we all together will be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. But according to 2 Corinthians 3, how are we transformed? How is it that we grow in holiness? How is it that we grow in Christ-likeness? How is it that we look more like Christ? Well, he says, by beholding the glory of the Lord. You want to grow in holiness? You want to grow in Christ-likeness? You want to have a deeper relationship with God? You want to have a more uh, clear awareness of his presence in your life? Behold his glory. Become in awe of his glory, of who he is. So when we live our lives together, empowered by the Spirit of God, when we obey His Word, when we study it, and and when we belong to the body of Christ, we grow to be more like Him. We shine more brightly. So as Moses and Israel begin to leave Mount Sinai, headed to the Promised Land under the Old Covenant, we think about that, students, you and I can rejoice that we too are in a wilderness. We're in a place that's not our home. And we're longing to go to our eternal promised land, this new heaven and new earth that will come at Christ's return. But we are doing so under a much better covenant. All of us have radiant, shining, unveiled faces. And one day we will see what Moses could not. Remember God said, no one can look upon the face of the Lord and live. But one day, Bible tells us as Christians, when we are glorified, we will see him face to face. We will see the face of the Lord Jesus in his glory. And then we will be like him. But until then, let's commit. Let's trust. Let's let's move forward to becoming more like him together. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we thank you that we are under a better covenant. God, we thank you that now we enter in your presence through the blood of Jesus, through a perfect sacrifice that's been applied to us by the Spirit, and we get to enjoy your glory. We get to behold your glory. We get to live in your presence. And so, God, I pray that you would transform us from one degree of glory to the next. You would sanctify us in your word, that we would see and behold your glory as you have revealed it to us in your word, as we see it in the lives of other believers around us, as we see it in the common grace that you afford us through creation. God, there are so many ways to love you and to worship you. We pray we would do so all in spirit and truth. God, we thank you for the book of Exodus. We thank you for the story of Israel that prepares us to to understand and receive with, with greater joy the new covenant that we get to enjoy in Christ. God, change us for your glory and for our good. We ask in Christ's name, amen.